Well, if you would, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1 to begin with. Genesis chapter 1. And uh, I want to begin with just a, a little review. And then we'll, we'll go into uh, uh, something new. But Genesis uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at just a little review on Genesis 1, verse 28 through 30, which uh, speaks about the... Uh, the Eden, the Edenic covenant, the Edenic covenant, begin reading with verse 28, Genesis 1. Then God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve. He blessed them, said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29, Genesis 1. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you it shall be for food. And verse 30, And to every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth to which there is life, I've given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then if you would drop over to chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15. So God first gives them everything naturally to eat, and then he, uh, he forbids something. Uh, chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So he makes a covenant with, with man, Adam and Eve. He says, Sorry, Cal. All right. Try it again. That's what a fat thumb does. The Edenic covenant, this is a covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in the garden when everything was still perfect. The curse hadn't fallen. Sin hadn't shown up. It was a covenant promise. The Adamic covenant, this is a covenant that he made with Adam. So first was Adam and Eve. The Adamic covenant, this is how God would deal with Adam outside the garden under the curse now, if you remember, if you remember, you had uh, Adam and Eve. They were to uh, they were to have everything at their being. They had eat everything naturally. Everything was in harmony. You would say in Genesis chapter one twenty eight, and then all of a sudden, uh, God forbid them to do something, and that was to eat from a tree that was in the center of the garden. And of course, they disobeyed God, and when they disobeyed God, they experienced the curse. And the curse um, was because of their disobedience and because of their curse, God would deal with them in certain ways. Man would, man would have, to, he'd have to work for the rest of his life for his living. The wife, she would have excessive pain during childbirth. And so that was all because of the curse. And the main, cor the main corporate uh, that uh, was in the garden was... Satan, if you remember, and 
He came in the form of a serpent and tempted them, and they yielded to his temptation. And because of that, God would deal with Adam and Eve outside the garden under this curse. Then you came down to the Noahic covenant. And that's where God made a promise to Noah and his family that never, families that never again would he destroy the planet uh, with water. So you know the story, you've heard it since childhood perhaps about how man continued to become evil and more evil until after a while his whole thinking process, thought process was evil and so it only left God uh, one alternative and that was destroy the earth and he chose to do that with a flood. But then he, he made a covenant with Noah and that he... Uh, a rainbow. He said a rainbow. He said a rainbow in the clouds as an indication uh, that he wouldn't destroy the earth again uh, with water. We know it's going to be destroyed and remade uh, one day, but it's not going to be destroyed with water. And so then you had the Noahic uh, covenant. And then after the Noahic covenant, you had the Abrahamic covenant, we haven't dealt with that yet, but we're, we're working toward the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. But we're going to skip it for right now and go to the Mosaic covenant. And this is after the Abrahamic covenant. But you have the Mosaic covenant, covenant with Moses, came after Abraham, uh, had established the nation. Israel's going to become a, a very special vehicle simply meaning God's going to use um, Israel uh, to reach the world, uh, for Israel to tell the world about their God. And that was his purpose and plan for Israel. They're going to be this special vehicle through which God's going to work among all the nations of the world. And so the Mosaic Covenant becomes known as the law. And so when you hear the law... Used, that's the Mosaic Covenant. If you hear the Mosaic Covenant term used, that's the law. And so we find that God has three aspects of the law. Three aspects of Israel's law. And we looked at them uh, briefly last week, and I'll just go ahead and mention them again for you that perhaps were not here. Three aspects of Israel's law. First, you had the moral law, and the moral law was the Ten Commandments, okay? That was one aspect of uh, the law, was the uh, moral law, which was Ten Commandments. And we're familiar with the Ten Commandments, and that's the moral law. And our laws today were based upon uh, the Ten Commandments. Our forefathers took those, the moral law of, Ju uh, uh, of uh, Moses and and based our moral law on those same laws. The next is ecclesiastical or ritual or temple worship part of the law. And so keep in mind there was a law divided into three parts. Look at it that way. First was the moral law. Next was the temple worship or the ecclesiastical or the ritual. This dealt with the sacrifices and types of sacrifices and special days that you observe and special feast days, festival days. This was all part of the temple worship, the ecclesiastical, or the ritual 
temple worship part of the law. So that's the second part of the law of Moses. Then you had the third part, and that's the civil law. That's how to get along with your neighbor and how to settle problems between individuals and communities. And so you can see how it kind of all holds together and works together. And so these, these three parts comp comprise what we refer to in Scripture as the Mosaic Law. So, you've learned something tonight. If someone mentions the Mosaic Law, you say, well, hey, I know it's divided into three different parts. One's the moral law, and one's the worship law, and then one's how we treat each other. And uh, that's, how, that's how the Mosaic Law is divided up. Now, tonight we want to go into uh, what may be listed in, as the Palestinian Covenant. The Palestinian Covenant. We want to cover the Palestinian Covenant tonight. We want to cover also the, the Davidic Covenant tonight in the time we have. And so, uh, let's talk about the Palestinian Covenant. Uh, whenever... We use the term Palestine. It does not refer to the promised land per se. Palestine is just a geographical area off to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. And so what you have, you can picture the Mediterranean Sea, and you go east, east from the Mediterranean Sea toward the Jordan River. Jordan River kind of splits um, uh, Israel. You go to the Jordan River and maybe just a little east of the Jordan River. And that area is known as Palestine. Palestine. So we're talking about the Palestinian covenant. Now the importance of this, it refers to in Scripture as Palestine coming from the word Philistines. Okay, I was looking at a Bible map before I came in here and uh, perhaps next week we'll be able to throw that up on the screen and give you the, the boundaries um, because it's, it's very important. Um, but anyways, we go on tonight. Um, this, within the geographical area of Palestine, we have the promised land and the nation of Israel. So God marks off an area of land that he gives to his, his people. And it's referred to at times as as Palestine. Palestine really is not a nation. Keep that in mind. It's, it's not a nation. He's not making an agreement with a nation, but what he's doing, he's setting boundaries for his people. And uh, the name, the word Palestine or Palestinian comes from the word Palestine or the Philistines. So within this geographical area of Palestine, we have the promised land, we have the nation of Israel. Now, Israel only went a little ways east of the Jordan River. I mentioned that. You had three tribes that went east or remained east of the Jordan River. All the other nine tribes went, crossed over Jordan. You remember the Bible story about Joshua leading the people over, Moses and Joshua leading the people over, and... Um, so they crossed the River Jordan. But three tribes stayed on the east side. Okay? Israel only went a little ways east of the Jordan River. This was, 
This was for the three tribes that Moses gave permission to stay on the east side of the Jordan River, providing that they would send their young men with the rest of the tribes to fight for the independence of the land of the Canaanites. So they come to the Jordan River. And so they're crossing the Jordan River and they're fixing a fight with the, with, uh, the Canaanites. And there were two and a half tribes that asked permission to stay on the east side of the river, not to go over with everybody else. And it kind of angered some. If you would, look in your Bible to Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32. Hope you brought your Bibles because you're going to really need them. Um, Numbers chapter 32, and look at uh, verse 1. Numbers 32, verse 1. Numbers 32. Right at the front. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 32. Numbers 32, and we're going to look at verse 1. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children, verse 2, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation. Drop down to verse 4. The country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Verse 5, Therefore they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over Jordan. Keep in mind, everybody's going over Jordan. They're going to be fighting the Canaanites. So you have three tribes that says, Hey, we want to stay on this side. This is a beautiful place and there's plenty of grass and, and we have cattle and we have livestock and we want to stay here. Verse 6, And Moses said to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? And so you have an argument that's begun. Look at verse 7. Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? So by you wanting to stay here, you're going to discourage everybody that's going over there to fight the Canaanites. So if you would look at Numbers 32. Numbers 32. And we're going to look at verse 16. One chapter over and look at verse 16. See what they said. Then they came near to him and said, to Moses, we'll, we'll build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed and we'll be ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place and our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of their inhabitants of the land. Verse 18, we will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. For we will not inherit, verse 19, with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan. They'd been given their inheritance, but they were to go on over and fight with the others where they could have their inheritance. And now they're wanting to stay behind. And so they're coming to him and they're pleading with him and saying, Listen, leave our families and our children on the east side of the Jordan. 
and we'll go with you, and we'll fight. When it comes time to fight, we'll be there for you. Then verse 20, Then Moses said to them, If you do this thing, and if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, if you don't keep your part of the deal, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sins will find you out. He says, build cities for your little ones and your foes for your sheep, and do what you've proceeded out of your mouth. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, your servants will do as my Lord commands. So he says, go ahead and do it. But if we need you, you need to come running, so to speak. Turn, if you will, to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22. Joshua judges. Look at um, Joshua 22. And this is important. Joshua 22, verses 1 through 4. Joshua 22, verses 1 through 4. Joshua 22. Okay, Joshua 22, verse 1. Then Joshua called the Reubenites, here they are, the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed my voice and all that I've commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but you've kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he promised them. Now therefore return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, your servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So they kept their word. They kept their promise. It's kind of interesting. And so you have three tribes serving on the east side of the Jordan, have the other nine tribes in Palestine, or Palestine, serving, uh, conquering the land. But these came out, and they helped their brethren, and they were willing to fight, and they returned back home. So what are the promises that are associated with the land? Now we're talking about... Palestinian covenant does not have to do with a group of people, but it has to do with a geographical area from the Mediterranean Sea all the way across the Jordan River, just a little piece because you got those three tribes there. But most of it is on the west of the Jordan River. We'll see that a little more clearly next week, hopefully. So what are the promises? At this time, they have the law in place. They already have the law. They have the tabernacle, and they're ready to move into the promised land. It was God's design for Israel to take over the promised land. And what, what we want to do is remember present past history, but remember present day history. They were deeded that deed to the promised land. We'll go into that in, in the Abrahamic covenant, and how God gave them a deed, and what symbol he used to give them the deed to the promised land. And remember, he, he's the only one that can break that promise. And he said that he'll never break it. And so this is very important because it was God's design for Israel to take over the promised land. 
It wasn't the greed of Moses. It wasn't because Moses wanted that particular area. It wasn't because greed that they were going from Egypt to the Jordan, across the Jordan, into the Canaanite area. It wasn't because of Moses' greed. God had mandated that a strip of real estate between the Mediterranean Sea and especially the Jordan River was the promised land. It's the land of Canaan. It's uh, the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's theirs. It's theirs. Okay? No one else's. It's theirs. So later, when Christ sets up his kingdom, or sets up the kingdom, this, of course, will go all the way out to the Euphrates River, beyond the Jordan River, all the way out to the Euphrates River. That geographical area will be expanded. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29. De Deuteronomy chapter 29. Look at it just for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 29, we're going to look at verse 1. Now, this is the Palestinian covenant. He says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord God, or which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. What does that mean? Okay? The covenant in Horeb is the covenant of the law that was given back at Mount Sinai. So he gave them a covenant back at Horeb. That was the Mosaic law, divided in three parts. But now he's given them another covenant. And this covenant that he's given now is this geographical location. So he's given them two covenants. This covenant is a second covenant involving the children of Israel. The first included the moral law, the, ecclesi the ecclesiastical law, and the civil law. God has given them another covenant because you can't have a group of people unless they have a homeland. Very important. So he's called out. Remember, he's called out. He made a promise to Abraham to help fulfill that promise. He promised him, uh, he's promised him children that would number the stars in heaven or the grains of sand on the, on the shore. And then he's, he brought about that promise. He brought about the Jew out of the stream. Remember, Les Feldick mentioned the stream of humanity, and out of that stream he pulled Abraham and from Abraham, he poured out a nation, a Jewish nation, to work specifically with that group of people to reach a world to himself. Okay? And so now, he's given them this geographical location because you can't have a group of people unless they have a homeland. If they don't have a homeland, they'll just be a bunch of nomads just roaming all over the place. So they had to have a place that they could call from, for their own. And so he gives them what we call the promised land, the land of Canaan, or their land. So after waiting, preparing, getting ready for 430 years, now this is the covenant of land that God is going to promise Israel. 
Hey, let's review just a moment. Oh, we got the video here. Okay, let's look at this uh, short video and then we'll take a break. But pay real close attention to this because he's going he's gonna to go into more description of the homeland. And so you just write down the scriptures he mentions. You can go back later and get some information from them. But uh, this is really good. gives us real good understanding of why they have what they have today. So watch this just for a moment. Abraham. They now have the law in place. They have the tabernacle. And they're ready to move on up into the promised land. Now in order to verify then that Israel's taking over of the land of Canaan was by God's design. It wasn't greed on the Israelis' part. It wasn't greed on Moses' part. But God had mandated that that strip of real estate between the Mediterranean and especially the Jordan River was the promised land and which will, of course, later when Christ sets up the kingdom, will go all the way out to the Euphrates River. All right, now if you'll come in with me then, in Deuteronomy 29, we have the first mention of this covenant promise of a piece of real estate or what we call the Palestinian Covenant. Chapter 29, verse 1. Now these are the words of the covenant. See, there's the word. Now maybe I should stop and define a covenant again. A covenant in Scripture is that which originated in God, even though it's on behalf, of, in this case, of the nation of Israel. Yet it stops with God. In other words, even though Israel may break these covenant promises, God does not break the covenant himself. And we're going to see that, especially when we get to the new covenant, when they refer to the old covenant, which Israel broke, but God didn't. And so always remember that these covenant promises are unbreakable until God decides to end it of his own volition. Okay, so these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, this covenant is beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now, what's he talking about in Horeb? Well, that's the covenant of law that was given back at Mount Sinai. So this is a second covenant involving the children of Israel. The first, he gave them the law, as we've already explained, the moral law, the ecclesiastical, the civil law. But now he's giving them yet another covenant because after all, you cannot have a group of people unless they have a homeland. Otherwise, it's just anarchy and they're just nomads. So they're going to have to have a homeland. And so God, by design now, has set the stage for Israel to go in and take over the land of Canaan. They've been working and promoting it and getting it ready for Israel for 430 years, remember. And now this becomes then the covenant of the land that God is going to promise to Israel. All right, now then verse 2. So Moses called unto all Israel, and he said unto them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, unto Pharaoh and all his servants, and unto all his land, the great temptations or testings which thy eyes have seen, the signs and the great miracles. See? All right, now then come down to verse 7. And when you came unto this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us unto battle, and we smote them. They defeated them. Verse 8, 
We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and the half-tribe Manasseh. Now those are the three tribes that stayed then on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, you know, I always like to use geography and history to make these things plain. Remember that when Moses left Sinai, he took them up to the south side of the land of Canaan, Kadesh Barnea, and told them to go in and take the land. Well, I trust you all know by now what happened. In unbelief, they rejected it. They said, we can't do it. So they came back out into the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off. Now then, Moses brings them around on the east side of the Dead Sea, which is on the east side of Jordan River, and they're going to come in from the east into the land of Canaan. All right, now as they are approaching the Jordan River from the east and they see the land of Canaan out in front of them, in fact, on a clear day, you can be up there on Mount Nebo where Moses died, and on a clear day, you can see clear across to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, those of you that were just with us in Israel, it's amazing how much of the land you can see from a high spot. We were on one of the promenades above the city of Nazareth the other day, and it was a beautiful day, wasn't it? My, the pictures of that up there are just unbelievable. But you can stand up there just in front of Nazareth, and you can look almost to the Sea of Galilee because the nation of Israel is so small, see? All right, so now here again, these three tribes are going to stay on the east side of Jordan. Now I've got to make a point. When I'm constantly referring to the fact that Jesus never had anything to do in ministering to Gentiles in his earthly ministry, the one that people like to throw up, well, what about the Gadarenes, where he sent the, the demons, you remember, out of the swine and, and into the sea? Well, the Gadarenes, you see, were generations removed from what tribe? Gad, see? So no, he wasn't dealing with Gentiles. He was still dealing with the offspring of these three tribes who had stayed on the east side of the Jordan River. Easy to understand if you know what the book said. Okay, so now then, after giving permission for those three tribes to stay east of the Jordan, Verse 9, keep therefore the words of this, what again? Covenant, this agreement that God is going to give the nation of Israel the homeland for them to enjoy as their own land. All right, now then, verse 12, that thou shouldst enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, that he may be unto thee a God, as he has said unto thee, and he has sworn to thy fathers, that is, to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, now right there again, I've got to remind you of that verse that we use over and over in the book of Romans, Romans 15, verse 8. Many of you should be able to start quoting it from memory. And what does it say? that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, the nation of Israel, for the truth of God, but for what purpose? To confirm or to fulfill the promises made to the fathers. That's what Paul writes. All right, who were the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what were the promises? That God himself 
would take the nation into their own promised land and after a period of time, they didn't know how long, but after a period of time, he would come in the person of God the Son, the Messiah of Israel, and rule and reign from Jerusalem. Now this is all part and parcel of getting Israel ready for the coming of their Messiah. All right, now then I think we can come all the way down to chapter 30, and now we're going to leap the centuries, almost the millennia, and now we're going to see a prophetic promise concerning the children of Israel. They're going to be uprooted out of this promised land at least twice. The first time was when Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon and overran the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the city and the temple, burned it to the ground, and took the nation of Israel captive. Well, 70 years later, a small remnant came back, of course, and then the second time it happened, almost deja vu all over again, only now it's the Romans, and in 70 AD, Rome besieged the city of Jerusalem, Rome crashed the gates, and Rome destroyed the temple, and Rome uprooted the Jew out of their city and out of their land by God's decree. All right, now here we pick it up then in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now remember, this is Moses writing 1,500 years before Christ, or 3,500 years before where we are today, and we're seeing the fulfillment of this, pro of this promise and prophecy right now today. All right, verse 1 of Deuteronomy 30. And it shall come to pass. Now, when God says it's going to happen, you can just bank on it. And all these things are come upon thee, blessings and curses, which I have set before thee. And thou, that is, the nation of Israel, thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations. Now, watch what that says. That means every nation on the planet will have Jews within it because they've been uprooted out of the land and God has providentially scattered them into every nation under heaven. Now, of course, when Moses writes, it's prophecy. But here you and I are now sitting in the daytime looking at these fulfilled promises that after being scattered, they are now brought back into their promised land. Verse 2, after being scattered, thou shalt return, that is, to their homeland. And thou shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thy heart, with all thy soul. All right, now verse 3. When they would come back from this final dispersion, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity, have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations. Now, isn't it hard to comprehend why the world in general can't understand that? They won't read it. And don't just blame the unbelieving world. Most church people won't. They refuse to believe these things. They don't even want to read it. But there it is in plain English. I can't put it any other way. That after they've been dispersed into every nation under heaven, God is going to providentially bring them back into their homeland as we see even today. All right, verse 4. I think this is even interesting. In case a Jew is out in outer space with a 
rocket or whatever, or if he's on a space station, if any of thine be driven out unto the outmost force of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence he will fetch thee. Now verse 5. Now I want you to be constantly aware of this one word, land, over and over and over. God is talking about this covenant by which Israel will have her homeland. All right? And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed. That is, back under the time of Joshua especially, and uh, then going on through the times of the judges. All right? And so the Lord thy God will gather thee, and he will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possess. He will do to thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. Now verse 6, we're going to come back to this when we deal with the new covenant. I don't know if we'll get that far today or not. I hope to. But when he deals with Israel under the new covenant, then verse 6 kicks in. Not until. In other words, even tonight, you ask the average Jew anywhere in the world, anything pertaining to these promises, and he's totally ignorant of them. They just do not have a comprehension that God is providentially taking care of them. He's helping them overcome all the obstacles because it's prophecy. It has to happen. All right, so the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land. Well, we're not going to finish everything I wanted on this one, but I'm going to jump up for sake of time now all the way to Ezekiel which talks more about some of these promises than any of the other major books of prophecy. But I'm going to bring you to Ezekiel. I think I'm going to want 34. Ezekiel 34. Let's start verse 11, honey. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. Now, don't forget what we've just covered, that God, by covenant design, has set aside that piece of real estate between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River and a little beyond for his chosen people. And it's by his sovereign design. No United Nations can overrule it. No White House decree can overrule it. Congress can't overrule it. This is the sovereign God. All right, now then, Ezekiel 34, starting verse 11, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. Now, I've made the statement, and I've been surprised that I didn't get flack. Who are the sheep of Scripture? Israel, the Jew. The Jew is the sheep of Scripture. And their Messiah... God the Son is their shepherd. Now, you see, Paul never refers to you and I as Gentile members of the body of Christ as sheep. And he doesn't refer to Christ as our shepherd. Now, he does use it in one place in one of his letters, but not that he's the shepherd of the body of Christ, but he's the chief shepherd of all creation. And so always make that distinction. The sheep of Scripture are the nation of Israel. All right, come back to our text then. So verse 12, as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, as Israel was in the dispersions, 
so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and the dark day. Now verse 13. Now listen, this is the promises of God. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. Now do you see why some of us get upset when the Israeli government, probably under the pressure of our American government, want to give back land to the Arabs? That flies in the face of God's promises. They have no right to give one square foot to anybody but the nation of Israel. It's covenanted. It's theirs by God's design. All right, he will bring them into their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel. Now it's interesting. You know, we promoted a little paperback several months or maybe a couple years ago with the title of which, The Mountains of Israel. Now, you know, all the mountains of Israel, as we see them delineated in the Old Testament, are presently under Arab control. They're in the West Bank. And do you think God's going to rest until that's been corrected? No way. And so as we sometimes wonder what in the world is the future, we can rest assured that one day God's going to set everything straight according to his promises. All right, another verse or two here. And uh, the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country, I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. Now he's talking about the people, not the sheep. And even in these mountainous areas of Israel, it's going to be lush and green and productive. Now, you know, this is the one thing I think we all noticed, didn't we, Charlie? Israel has had an abundance of rain and snow all winter. The Sea of Galilee was full once again. The last time Iris and I were over there, it was almost pitiful. The shoreline was way, way out, and they had reached what they called the red line, where they could no longer take water from it. And uh, now this time it was full to the brim and the countryside was just beautiful. Everything was green and the flowering trees were in bloom and we could just genuinely see how it is definitely like a rose blooming in the desert today. All right, so now you can get a good picture of this. They aren't even close yet. This is all going to take place after Christ returns and sets up the kingdom, see? But we're already seeing the beginnings of it. All right, verse 14 again, I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture they shall feed upon the mountains of Israel. Now that's symbolic language, of course, but how the nation is going to enjoy all the blessings of Jehovah. See? All right, and then verse 16. I will seek that which was, what? Lost. Oh, the nation of Israel tonight, for the most part, is lost in unbelief. They don't even have a comprehension that everything that they're able to do is by God's design. It's really sad. And yet we who know Scripture know better. We know that God is in sovereign control of everything that's taking place over there. All right, read verse 16, then our time's going to be gone. I will bring again that which was driven away. I will bind up that which was broken. I will strengthen that which was sick. 
and I will destroy the fat and the strong, that is, their enemies, and I will feed them with judgment, and I've always defined that word judgment in Scripture as a benevolent government. Whenever we speak of judgment like here, it speaks of a benevolent government that indeed is operating for only one purpose, and that is the good of the people that are under it. And then verse 17, I guess it will be time to close. And as for you, O my flock, my nation of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between rams and he-goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures. And verse 19 again, And as ye, for my flock, they eat that which you have trodden with your feet, they drink that which you have fouled with your feet. Thus saith the Lord, God will judge. Thus saith the Lord, God unto them, Behold, I and I will judge between the fat and the lean. Now all he's saying there is that when Israel comes into the place of blessing, all of those who have opposed her will come under the wrath and the judgment of Thank a sovereign God. Thank you for God. watching Through the Okay, so as we think about, if we think about the Palestinian covenant, that's just a covenant between God and His people that He was going to provide a homeland for them, and uh, and no one will be able to um, to void that covenant. That's uh, God made the covenant. It's God that ends the covenant. And so, uh, just for a review, you have the Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Palestinian covenant. We're going to take just a short break, and when we come back, we're going to finish up with the Davidic covenant. And so, let's take, I'll be back in at six o'clock, if you will. Blank on this, because I feel like he explained it so well, and so, uh, if you'll just follow along, jot down the scripture, go back, just jot down some important notes. Because have you ever wondered why Jesus is called the Son of David? You ever wondered why that? You ever wondered why Jesus is called the Son of David when Joseph was his was his earthly father, but he was miraculously uh, born uh, by the Holy Spirit, or? Uh, conceived, Mary conceived through the Holy Spirit, but yet he's called the son of David, sits on the throne of David. How's that all come about? Well, we're fixing to find that out. And so take some good notes because we're going to leave this and you'll see how it'll lead into the Abrahamic covenant. So this is the Davidic covenant. So we'll go ahead and watch this, Cal. What does the Word of God say? And uh, so we are looking presently at the covenant promises, especially between God and Israel, and how everything is leading up to His second coming when He will establish that glorious heaven-on-earth kingdom, and Israel will come to the fruition of all of these Old Testament promises. 
But in the meantime, there's going to be several <clears throat> hundred years transpire, even before his first coming. All right, so now we're picking up our text then, if you will, in Ezekiel chapter 34, where the promise is that Israel will one day have the land of promise, because after all, they're God's chosen people, and God is going to make sure that they get every square acre that he deems for them to have. All right, we were in chapter 34, and I'm going to jump down now to verse 24, honey. Chapter 34, verse 24, where God is speaking now to the nation, and he says, I, the Lord, will be their God. Now remember, this is all looking forward to the kingdom age. It hasn't happened yet. And my servant David, now mark that one down, because you see the next covenant we're going to be talking about is the Davidic covenant, a covenant that God made between himself and David. All right, so always be aware of this term, David. It's intrinsic to prophecy. All right, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, and I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant, there's that word again, <clears throat> of peace. And I will cause the evil beasts to see out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the wood. In other words, it's going to be a place of complete safety. No fear of anything that could harm them. <clears throat> Verse 26, <clears throat> And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing. I will cause the shower to come down in his seizing, and there shall be showers of blessing all upon the promises made to the nation of Israel. All right, now let's jump across to chapter 36, and then in a little bit we'll come back to 35. But now let's jump over to chapter 36 where we continue this whole theme that after Israel has been dispersed into the nations of the world, God will supernaturally bring them back to their homeland against all odds. And if you've read anything at all to the years leading up to the nation of Israel becoming a nation in 1948, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. They were under constant opposition from Great Britain, who at that time was the ruling force in the world. And the Arab world was in constant opposition. And yet, in spite of, all, spite of it all, the Jews ended up and began clearing the land and make it ready for production. But now into Ezekiel 36, verse 1. God continues with these prophecies concerning Israel's coming into the land. Also thou, son of man, prophesied to the mountains of Israel. And remember, like I said in the last program, all the Old Testament mountains of Israel are in the present-day West Bank. They are under Arab control. But the day will come when they will once again be part of the homeland of Israel. <clears throat> Verse 2. Thus saith the Lord God, because the enemy hath said against you, Aha, even the ancient high places are ours in possession. Well, isn't that exactly what the world, Arab world is doing tonight? Hey, it's ours, and we're going to enjoy it. But you see, they had nothing to enjoy until Israel came and got it in production, and then they come in. The enemies of Israel are claiming right to the land, Therefore prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord God, 
because they, Israel's enemies, have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side that you might be a possession to the residue of the heathen or the Gentile world, and you are taken up in the lips of talkers and are in infamy of the people by the rest of the world. Now verse 4, Therefore, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills, to the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, to the cities that are forsaken, which became a prey and derision, to the residue of the heathen or the Gentiles that are round about. Verse 5, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the residue of the heathen and against all Idumea, which was another portion of the Gentile Arab world, who have appointed my land unto their possession. Ring a bell? My, it's in front of us every day, these very things, see? And they will claim it as their own. All right, now then, verse 6, prophesy therefore concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and the hills, the rivers and the valleys, thus saith the Lord God, because I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury, because you have borne the shame or the persecution and the oppression of the heathen or the Gentile world. Well, we won't take any more from verses. Now let's just come all the way down in this same chapter to verse 24. Because I like to pick out these verses that are so explicit and yet so simple. You don't have to be a theologian or a rocket scientist to figure out what this says. It's plain English. All right, verse 24. For God says, I will take you, the children of Israel, the chosen people, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries. What did Moses say back in Deuteronomy? When you've been scattered into every nation under heaven, you will return. Well, now this is how Ezekiel puts it, see? I will gather you out of all the countries and I will bring you into not the Arabs' land. Whose land? Your land. It's always been theirs. And even though God sovereignly uprooted them, God never took away the deed promises to the nation of Israel that it's their land. Even though he chastises the nation, by uprooting them and scattering them, yet he never gave that land to anybody but to the children of Israel. All right, now then we can come on over into chapter 37 and the vision of the dry bones, and most of you know that one. I don't have to go through those verses, but always remember that the dry bones were merely a picture of Israel out in the dispersion amongst the nations. And Israel out of the land of blessing is just like a corpse. And so the picture was of these bones that were depicting the nation of Israel in dispersion. And they were very white because they'd been out there for centuries. But now you see, come down to verse 11, these bones have come together. They have come back to life. And here is the explanation of the of the symbolism, or the vision. 
Verse 11, <clears throat> Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones that he saw in that valley vision, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now I think most of you know there has been a theological teaching abroad for many, many years that the ten tribes of the northern kingdom were lost and there's only really two tribes left for the end time? Well, now wait a minute. Do two tribes compose the whole house of Israel? No way. No way. So right here we have evidence that the ten tribes were never lost. They were always a part of Judah and Benjamin. And so the whole house of Israel has never disappeared from view. It is still an entity, and I maintain that even today, God knows what tribe every Jew is connected to. I don't care where he is or where he's been. God knows what tribe he's belonged to. All right, so here we have it, that the whole house of Israel is depicted in these bones. And now he says, verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, Israel, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Now just to show you how theologians can foul up and corrupt the scriptures, one guy was trying to tell me one time that this was just a picture of lost mankind and that the salvation of lost mankind was depicted here in these bones coming to life. Well, now how ridiculous can you get? This is strictly a picture of Israel in dispersion brought back to the land of promise. All right, now we can come down to verse 15. God's going to show a further illustration that all the tribes of Israel are still intact. None of them have been lost. None of them have disappeared, and they're all ready for the return of Christ. All right, verse 15, The word of the Lord came in me, saying, Moreover, son of man, take one stick and write upon it for Judah. Now, just, just picture this in your mind. Here you got a piece of wood, and they were to write upon it for Judah, the southern kingdom, and for the children of Israel, his companions. In other words, you've heard me teach before <clears throat> that shortly after the kingdom was divided, there was a migration of all the ten tribes to the north down into Judah. And so here we have that depicted. Not only Judah and Benjamin, but representatives of all the other ten tribes are now with them in Judah. But God is also going to make sure we understand that he has not forgotten the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. All right, so he takes a second stick, verse 16. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. And that's all part of the ten tribes of the north, remember. And for all... Now, just to show you how the New Testament is in full accord, keep your hand in Ezekiel. We're going to come right back. Jump all the way up to Acts chapter 2. Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And when these big wheel theologians try to tell people that the nation of Israel has disappeared, 
The present-day Jews aren't Jews at all. They're something else. Well, I can't help but differ. Now, here, as late as probably around 30 A.D., shortly after Pentecost. In fact, this is the day of Pentecost. I'm sorry. So this would be at the same time as the crucifixion. Now, look how Peter looks at it. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and we'll be looking at this when we come to the Davidic covenant as well. But here he says, verse 36, Therefore, because of the prophecies concerning David and the nation of Israel back in the book of Psalms, therefore, Peter says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. Well, what house of Israel is he talking to? The Jews out in front of him. They, too, were all represented by the 12 tribes of Israel as late as Pentecost. And then is, uh, Paul comes back in his epistles, and he refers to the house of Israel, not just Judah and Benjamin, but the whole 12, or if you want to include the half-tribes, the 13 or 14 tribes in total. All right, back to Ezekiel again, if you will, then. And so these two sticks... One representing the southern kingdom, one representing the northern kingdom. Verse 17, the Lord says, join them one to another, words, end to end, and they shall become one. Well, now what's the symbolism? It'll no longer be a divided nation. It's going to be a nation comprised of the whole. And that's the symbolism. This stick becomes one even as they were before the kingdom divided. All right, verse 18, And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Then say unto them. Now here comes the explanation. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will, sometime in the future, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, that is one of the tribes of the northern kingdom, and the tribes of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. And I will make them one stick, and those twelve tribes shall be one, God says, in my hand. Now verse 21, here comes that repeated promise. My, if you don't get anything else out of these two programs, you'll get one thing straight, that after Israel has been scattered into the nations of the world, God's going to bring them back. And he's going to yet fulfill all the promises concerning his covenant people. All right, so now you come down to verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, that is, with the nation of Israel. It shall be an everlasting covenant covenant. It's going to go right on into the new heavens and the new earth one day. And I will place them and multiply them and send my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Then verse 28, and the heathen, the non-Jewish world, then they will know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. Now, I can't get plainer than that. They are his chosen people. They are his covenant people even though they're guilty of rank unbelief, have been all the way up through history. I just go back and read some of the books of history, Kings and, and uh, 
the Chronicles, and then the book of Isaiah, Israel's constant rebellion, and yet God never gave up on them. As he told, as we'll see in the Davidic Covenant, he told David, even though they commit iniquity, my mercy shall never depart from them. God will never let go of the nation of Israel. All right, so verse 28 again, the heathen and non-Jewish world shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary or his dwelling place shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Now, we'll come to that when we get to the new covenant, but let's put that on hold for now. All right, now, how are we going to deal with the Arab world and their hatred and their opposition to the nation of Israel? Well, it's all here in prophecy. Now, come across the page, at least in my Bible, to chapter 38 of Ezekiel. And here we have the war and the invasion, as most of you heard it, of Gog and Magog. But I'm just thinking that most people today do not understand what class or what group of people are really involved in this great invasion. All right, let's start. I think we got time. Right up at verse 1 in Ezekiel 38. Now remember, this battle is going to take place shortly after the tribulation begins. Now for years and years, I just felt isolated. I never would find anybody to agree with that. Everything I ever read, they'd put it back there with Armageddon or at the midpoint. But now, believe it or not, I'm getting to see more and more people agreeing that this is going to take place shortly after the tribulation begins. And there's going to be an invasion by people to the north of Israel and God will destroy them on the mountains of Israel. All right, let's look who they are. Verse 2, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog. Now, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that this is a reference to Moscow and Russia. They will be the ringleaders of all this, but look who their cohorts will be. Verse 3, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back. In other words, God will providentially cause the military to do this. I think they're getting ready even today. Don't ever think for a minute that the Russian army or the Russian military power is defunct. They're as viable as ever. In fact, I was listening to one of my old tapes back in the book of Revelation, made in 91 or 92, and I made the same statement. You may think the Russian bear is dead, but don't you believe it. They are manufacturing just as many arms today as they ever have. Their espionage people are multiplying by tremendous numbers. They're not dead. They are getting ready for this final great invasion. All right, now read on. Verse 4 again, I will turn thee back. In other words, I will providentially turn you, put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you forth. And all thine army, Horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor. Now, of course, that's the language of antiquity, and you just bring that up into present day, and you've got tanks and helicopters and whatever it takes to make an invasion. All right, now look who comes with the Russian leadership. Persia. Of Iran. Muslim. 99 and 9 tenths percent Muslim. All right, Ethiopia down there in Africa, or if there was another one someplace else, it still doesn't make that much difference. Ethiopia, religiously, what are they? 
Muslim, Libya, Gaddafi's Libya, what are they? Muslim. All of North Africa is Muslim, remember. All of North Africa. And all of them with shield and helmet. Now you jump up to six. Gomer. Well, that's East Europe. And you know, I didn't realize until we had that Yugoslavian war that Albania and most of Yugoslavia are totally Muslim. I didn't know that. But that's Eastern Europe. And now on top of that, they're migrating westward, so by the time all this takes place, a good portion of Eastern Europe will be under the heavy hand of the Muslim religion. No doubt about it. All right, so here we have, all right, now verse 7. Be prepared, prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto me. And in verse 8, after many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land... What land that is brought back from the sword and gathered out of many people and against the mountains of Israel? Well, goodness sakes, what's that the vivid picture of? Israel today. Israel was totally devastated by the Roman invasion in 70 A.D. It was overrun by one empire after another for the next 1900 and some years. And then all of a sudden, since about the turn of the century, 1900, the Jews have been coming in and have been reinstituting the land, bringing in irrigation, and the land, as we said earlier, is blooming like a rose. All right, so here is the picture of Israel as they now sit ripe for this latter-day invasion. All right, <clears throat> verse 9. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, and so on and so forth. All right, now then, for sake of time, I have to come all the way over. Skip all the verses. You can read them when you get home this evening. And let's come down to verse 21. As these hordes of the Muslim world will come on an invasion on the mountains of Israel from the north, they'll probably come down through... Lebanon and through the Bekaa Valley and all of the present-day Syrian and Persian or Iran, Iraq, that whole Muslim part of the world, I think, will unite with a Russian leadership. But God's going to intervene supernaturally. Verse 21, and I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. Now, goodness sakes, what's going to happen? In their confusion, they'll be killing each other. Multitudes of them. And on top of that, verse 22, God will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. I will rain upon him and upon his bands. In other words, their battalions and their divisions of troops and whatever. And the many people that are with him, and overflowing rain, hailstone, fire, and brimstone. And God says, Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. So this is not the worldwide destruction of the tribulation. This is the singular destruction of the Muslim world as under Russian leadership, they invade the mountains of Israel. All right, now then, in the minute or two we have left, back up with me now to chapter 35 
and we'll see God's reason for coming down on the Muslim world with such wrath. Now, the point I always want to make, can God save the Arab or the Muslim? Absolutely. Absolutely. We can pray for their salvation. In fact, we've got a few ex-Muslims in our listening audience, and we love them. There's nothing that we have hatred toward them. It's just that we can't comprehend why they have such a hatred for God's chosen people. Well, here's the reason from Scripture. This isn't Les Feldick's idea. I can love the Arab world, but that doesn't change it. But here, look what God decrees. Ezekiel 35. I only got a minute. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir. Now, you remember, that was the home area of Esau. And prophesy against it, and say unto it, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, or O tribe of Esau, I am against thee, I will stretch out my hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay your cities waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, not for salvation, but be by virtue of his wrath. Now here comes the reason, and you can see it in every day's newspaper. Because thou hast had a perpetual hatred, and hast shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword, Suicide bombers? Doesn't make any difference how they do it. They just kill the Jew out of just simply wanting to get rid of that group of people that they have so much hatred for. Okay, so we looked at tonight the Palestinian covenant, which simply means that the Jews have this geographical area that's been promised to them, dated to them, and although people tried to take it away from them, although they were separated and sent into all different parts of the world, they're now coming back, and God is going to deal with those who have this continued hatred for the Jew, and in essence, he's going to destroy the, the Muslim world because of the hatred that they had for his people. And so it all, it's all, we're seeing a lot of this happen right now. And of course we see the destruction uh, and the hatred that the Arab world has for, has for the Jew and has for Christianity. But uh, God, God has given a covenant to the Jew, made covenant with the Jew, and that's going to always remain. And he's going to take care of it as we get closer to the end. But it's good to know, uh, regardless what may happen with this piece of cord and that piece of cord and different piece of cords, uh, there is no peace. There'll never be peace like they're looking for because according to God's word, um, they'll cry peace, peace, and there is no peace. And so he's going to, he's going to deal with, with those who persecute the Jews. And that's, that's been it ever since, uh, uh, since Adam and Eve and ever since the serpent tried to do away with the seed of David. Uh, it's always been uh, total destruction, trying to do away with God's people. And so, but he's going to be victorious in the end. So I hope you've learned something tonight. So we're going to look at the Divinity Covenant, not next Sunday. We won't meet next Sunday evening, but uh, we'll come back 
uh, after Mother's Day and we'll meet. Let's stand. We're going to be dismissed. Thank you again for being here tonight. Remember the announcements. And... Uh,